Well, good evening. It's good to be back with you again on the, the celebration of the formation of your church. Will you turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew's Gospel chapter 5. This morning we were looking at the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest sermon that we have for, recorded from Jesus' ministry. It's one of the most, the fullest, the most powerful, the most profound expressions of the new life, the new world that Jesus Christ came into the world to make us part of. And it begins famously with the Beatitudes, nine sayings, all of which of the form, blessed are. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this was a well-known form of teaching. You'll find Beatitudes in the Psalms and in the Proverbs in the Old Testament. It's, it's a way of teaching us what we ought to be longing for. Do you want to know who is really blessed? Do you want to know what you ought to be wishing for? Whose life you ought to be envying? Well, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. In some ways, it's the same kind of job that advertisers are trying to do. They want you to look at the beautiful people and the beautiful car and say, I wish I had that car. They want you to, to look at the happy couple and say, well, we would be as happy as they are if we had lived in that wonderful house. Except these Beatitudes are giving us a vision of true blessedness. Now this evening what I want to do is look at what Jesus said next. Because sometimes these passages of scripture are so well known that we atomize them in our head. We separate them off and we forget that this next part of the Sermon on the Mount, which in many ways is almost as famous and as well known as the opening words, has its primary significance because it's what comes after the Beatitudes. And I believe we'll understand them properly only if we remember that these are what came after those nine saints. So we're going to read from the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5, even though it's just the last few verses we're going to be focusing on. So let's read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Those are God's words. I think that the key to understanding the well-known call to be salt, to be light, lies in refusing to, to examine these two sayings as if they're just kind of isolated proverbs. Because that's what we do with them. We, we quote them as if they're just little standalone sayings. You know, it's really important that we be salt in this situation. Or, you know, how can we be light in Dundonald? Or we're the salt of the earth, so we need to be whatever it is that we're talking about. We extract it from this lengthy and, and coherent sermon, and we just use it. We, we act as if these are the only things that Jesus said that day. Which means that we can fill them up with whatever we want them to say to mean on this day. But in the first 12 verses of this chapter, Jesus has already defined what he means when he says, You are salt and you are light. And we really ought to listen to him. I mean, if you took one sentence out of my sermon this evening and forgot everything else I said, or if you took a single sentence from any sermon or a, a political speech or, or any conversation, really, and you, you just remembered that one sentence, half a dozen words, what are the odds that that would accurately represent the balance of what was being said? Why else do you think politicians are so afraid of, of being quoted? They never want to say anything that forms any kind of articulate argument because they know fine rightly that the editors of the news are going to lift out one sentence and that's going to be the sound bite they're going to be battered with all day. That's why they speak in these empty, bulletproof little slogans which are, are designed not to advance the conversation but simply to be resistant against distortion. And it's even worse if the thing you decide to take away is, is a metaphor. If it's an illustration, because they are inherently elastic. The whole point of them is that they can be used for all kinds of things. It's the preacher's despair. Everybody remembers the illustration. That was a wonderful little story. Why did he tell it? I don't know. So salt and light. If we are careful, they can be anything we like. Unless we take pains to make sure that we are understanding them in the context in which he said them. As the next thing he said after the Beatitudes. Think about the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. How many sermons have been written on that one line that consisted essentially of the preacher going and looking up sheep in Wikipedia. And starting to tell you all the things that are true about sheep. Did you know that sheep are ruminants? It means they have to chew the cud. Anything they eat, they have to chew it over and over and over again. And so when a Christian reads the word of God, we must chew it over and over again. And, you know, that might be true, but it has nothing to do with the 23rd Psalm. You want to know what it means? It means the Lord is your shepherd. It's not about you. It's about him. 
God himself condescends to, to watch over you. And that means with such a shepherd looking after me, well, I will lack nothing. The image is supposed to, to express security because with such a shepherd, I know I will lie down in green pastures. I will be led by still waters. I will have my soul refreshed and be guided along the right path. I mean, Paul tells, David tells us exactly what he means. But our temptation is to take hold of one vivid picture and run up and down the street and do all kinds of things with it. We do exactly the same with these images of salt and of light. And so what I want to do this evening is figure out what they actually meant. Why Jesus introduced them. Why, why exactly it is, he says, that you are the salt of the earth and that you are the light of the world. And why he says it immediately after the Beatitudes. Because when you put these two together, I, I think you get one simple message. The thing that Jesus is telling us when he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he's basically simply saying, do your job. You are a people who have been given a new dream, a new vision, a new set of goals and aspirations, the glimpse of a whole new world. So go out there and live as if it's true. Do your job. Get out there and be salt. What you have seen, what you have learned to long for, this new dream that God has given to you, it makes you a light. So let people see that light. Do you want to know why Jesus says you are the salt of the earth? It's because having seen me, he says, having followed me out into this wild mountainous place just to hear what I'll say, having watched me heal the sick and deliver the possessed, you consider yourself blessed even though you're still poor. Because you have seen the kingdom of God today. And that's what makes you salt. You dream of different things. That's what makes you shine. And let me say this to you. If you're not a Christian tonight, it's possible that one of the reasons that you're here or one of the reasons you're listening to this in some form is that you have a Christian friend who puzzles you. Because, you know, they're weird. You know, they, they hunger and thirst after righteousness the way you hunger and thirst after a promotion or a, a girlfriend or 100,000 followers on YouTube, and they seem all the happier for it. And you just don't get it. Or because this Christian friend of yours, they seem to be able to forgive. You know, they can just let things go that I would never let go. They're merciful. And I don't know why. What is it that they see that I don't? And I want to tell you, I want to explain what it is that you see in them, because what you see in them is Christ. Or his reflection, at least. Because if you're not a Christian today, you're standing in the dark, looking at someone who has stepped out around the corner and into the full light of day. They're in the light, and look, they are glowing. You ever see a really glorious sunset? My wife and I were up on the North Coast recently, and you see some wondrous sunsets. But, but there is a moment sometimes just after the sun has dipped below the horizon. And so I'm in darkness, but the bottom of the clouds is still illuminated by the sun because it's still in the light. And they are wondrous. 
And they're just clouds, you know, they're gonna make it rain later, and it's depressing. But for a moment, because they are illuminated by a light that I can't see anymore, they are like an oil painting. That's what it is with your Christian friend. The fact that when you weigh them up, they're not really that different to you, they don't have any superpowers. They're just illuminated by a light that you cannot see. That's what it means to follow Christ. It means stepping into that same light. It means seeing a new world that you've never seen before. It means being told that there's a way you could be part of that world. Simply, if you will put your faith tonight in Jesus Christ. Because I want to tell you, this is an invitation. It's an invitation not to try and be like them. But to come out and stand where they are. Come out and see what they've seen. If you're not a Christian, you put your faith in Christ. That's what you're doing. And if you're thinking in this way, please do not leave this meeting before you talk to someone about it. Talk to me, talk to Richard, talk to anybody who brought you. But to those of you who already are Christians, this is a call to make sure that having seen him, having seen in him that glorious kingdom, that you really are that kind of puzzle to your friends. That you are that light that shines in their darkness to do your job. And he tells us two ways to do it. First of all, he says, do not blend in. And secondly, he says, do not hide. Don't blend in. Don't hide. Let's think about the first of those. Don't blend in. Why does Jesus say we are like salt? You know, very often people run to the books and they look up all the chemical properties of salt and you, you search through all the Old Testament uses of salt and all the, the context in which it was found and you're convinced that one of these will be the key to what Jesus meant by you are salt. And you find all kinds of things. You find that salt provides flavor. You, you might find out that salt can prevent corruption. If you read through the history books, you will find that on occasion salt was used as a form of currency. It was the mark of the covenant. Salt is essential for the health of your body. And you know, if you're going through all those things and searching through all those sources and scarring through the whole Old Testament, let me tell you something. You're working far too hard. It is much easier than that. Because just like the Lord is my shepherd, the explanation's right here. He tells us what he means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Because there's only one attribute of salt that Jesus is interested in, and it's its capacity to be salty. It makes things salty. And when it comes to making things salty, there's really no substitute. Nothing else makes things salty except for salt. You can't add something to salt and make it salty because salt is the source of saltiness. If salt isn't salting, there's no fix for that. There are no, no substitutes. And just to be sure, I actually looked online. I googled substitutes for salt, and there are some things that are suggested. One website suggested garlic. I don't know in what world garlic is a substitute for salt. Another one says you can use lemon juice. And, you know, no doubt these things have very sharp tastes, but they are not a substitute for salt. If you put garlic on my chips, you and I cannot be friends. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
you want to know what Jesus means when he says that you are the salt of the world? He's saying that if you can't do it, no one else can. If you aren't doing what only you can do in the workplace that he's put you in, in the school that you are attending, in the family that he has ordained you're a part of, if you are not doing what only you can do, then why are you even here? Because that's your job. That's why God put you there. Salt is a unique substance and it has a unique effect. And if it's not having that effect, then nothing else will. That's what this means. That's what you are the salt of the earth means. It means there is no substitute for you. You can't leave it and hope something else or someone else will do it. There is no substitute for you. Because you're the salt. Salt that loses its saltiness, he says, is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So do your job. You know what real blessing is. And they don't. And if you don't tell them, nobody else will. You see, our great temptation in life is to blend in, to do anything but stand out. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Do not blend in. Don't pretend that you're the same. Don't pretend that what you hope for and what you're dreaming of is no different than what everybody else is hoping for and dreaming of. Don't spend all your time dreaming about the holidays you will take this year or the shopping trips that you're planning or the home improvements that you're saving up for. Don't act as if that's what you want. If you're a Christian, God has given you greater desires. There's a grave danger in doing that. If you do that long enough, that will be what you long for. You're not supposed to blend in. Quite simply, you're supposed to be strange. Your purpose in life is to stand out. You're there to be salt, a unique, sharp taste that nothing else in creation is quite like. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be salt? Well, again, you don't have to run off to Wikipedia and find out. Because Jesus was a wonderful communicator. What he meant by salt is right here in this chapter. It's what he's been talking about in verses 3 to 12. The Beatitudes are what it means to be salt. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying, you see all that stuff I just told you about, like about four seconds ago? That's not just for you. Because when that's who you are, when that is what you want when that becomes what you value, then you will change the world just by being in it. And it has nothing to do with having achieved all those things. It's about being in your office, being in your job, being in your family, and all the time longing for a world that only you can see. If you're like that around people, you are going to have an effect. Your dissatisfaction with how you are, with how everything is, that's going to have an effect because being salt means being the kind of people who, when they are poor, consider themselves blessed because mine is the kingdom of heaven. Being salt means being the kind of people who, when they mourn, don't mourn like other people because they are comforted in a way that other people aren't. Being salt means hoping for different things out of life. Instead of hungering after security and safety and affirmation and recognition, they hunger for righteousness. And not in a guilty, 
you know, guilt-obsessed kind of a way, always down on themselves, but in the confident certainty that no matter how imperfect I may be right now, one day I am going to be perfect. Jesus has promised me I will, and I can't wait. Being salt means showing a a kind of mercy that, that baffles and, to be frank, sometimes even enrages the people who watch you do in it. Well, why are you showing mercy to him? He doesn't deserve it. Yeah, I know, isn't it great? Being salt means being persecuted and insulted and being talked about for being salt and acting as if you are the recipient of the highest honor you could have given me. Just the way the apostles in chapter 5 left their hearing before the Sanhedrin, having been flogged, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You are the salt of the world, and the Beatitudes begin to be the things you long for, the dreams that you cherish in your heart. Because when these become the things you value, the kingdom of God becomes the world you long for. And you will find it is quite simply impossible to blend in. You cannot hide And I'll be honest, it's not easy. The temptation to blend in, that the pressure to conform is immense, almost irresistible. But if we don't resist it, if we aren't salt, we are no use at all. If we blend in, then we are no longer good for anything, says Jesus, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That is strong language. And Jesus doesn't use strong language like that by accident. This is important, so don't try and take the rough edge off what you believe. There is a temptation, there isn't there, to to explain away the, the awkward things of Christianity to make them sound reasonable. Jesus is exclusive. There is no other way to be saved except through Jesus Christ. Every other religion for whatever good you might be able to, to find in it, they will all feel. Those who put their faith in anything but Jesus Christ will on the last day be lost because they don't have Jesus. You can't blend in and say, well, we're all broadly on the same side because it's not about what we believe. It's about who we believe. We can't blend in on the great debates of the day. God's commands are are absolute. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. That's just absolute. The meaning of gender is clear. God intends what we were born as to be what we feel like. Now, there are people who are profoundly confused in their mind and who are tormented by, by that experience, and we should be merciful, and we should be patient, and we should be compassionate, but... It is not kind to lie to them. The sanctity of life is non-negotiable. You do not have the right to end the life that's in your body. You do not have the right to choose the day of your death. Because your life is not your own. It was given to you. All of these things are going to make you stand out. They're going to make you look like a target. They will expose you to misunderstanding, even attack. But do not blend in. Not to keep your job. Not to keep your friends. Because you are the salt of the earth. They're supposed to know you're there. 
They're supposed to notice you're different. But remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must be kind to everyone, able to teach, but not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance. And do you know how you do that? Do you know how you avoid being quarrelsome? Make sure you're doing it not because you're disgusted with this world, but because you've seen a better one. And I want to tell you about it. So you talk about sexual purity, not because sex is somehow dirty or shameful, but because it's sacred and it is beautiful. And it is glorious. It's not just some idle recreation. It is far better than that. And it can be and it should be. And in Christ it becomes so. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So taking everything that Jesus has said in the Beatitudes, he turns to us and he says, if that's what you value, then you're going to be different. You're supposed to be different. Don't blend in. And then he gives us another picture. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. What does that mean? Quite simply, it means don't hide. If you're the salt of the earth, it means don't blend in. You're the light of the world, means do not hide. You see, you with all your strange dreams and your inexplicable aspirations, you're not just supposed to cause irritation. You're supposed to bring hope. You are the only light this world has. So don't hide it away. People don't light a lamp, says Jesus, and hide it under a bowl because that would be stupid. God, in saving you, if you're a Christian tonight, has made you a light in a dark place. Like clouds lit from beneath by a setting sun. So what are you doing hiding? Well, why do you try to make sure that, that your Christianity doesn't stand out? Don't you understand that standing out is the only way they will see? Do not hide. I mean, do you think people get saved by listening to people like me? You think they just wander in by accident through the door and then they listen to someone like me chatter on for half an hour and they get saved? I mean, God can do it that way. But 99 times out of 100, that's not what happens, is it? They get saved when they believe and they believe when they see that it's real and you are God's proof that it's real. You are the light of the world. They look at you and they don't understand you and then someone like me tries to explain what you are and what has happened to you, but you're the light. So put it on its stand. Let it give light to everyone in the house, whatever house you happen to be in. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't hide. And don't do it simply because you'll be failing Jesus if you do. It's because you'll be failing them. You are their Light to the people you work with who may be suffering from depression or, or disappointment or just crushing failure in, in their lives. You are light. You have the answers they need. Now let me ask you, do you honestly believe that? 
When you go to work and you think of the people you worked with or you go to school with, the people who are your friends, do you honestly believe that what they need is Jesus? Or have you just listened to the world around you and say, well, this is my thing, you know, this works for me, they might need something different? Or do you honestly believe that every human being on the face of the earth, what they need, what they long for, is Jesus? Because if you believe that, don't hide it from them. That, that's the most inexplicable cruelty. You are how they will see about what otherwise they might only hear about. And words are cheap. Any, any charlatan can promise you utopia. Through you, they, they will see, not so much through what you do, as through why you do it, what it is that you long for. Because it's one thing to forgive people because you think you're superior to them. I'm being the better man. It's another thing entirely to forgive people because forgiveness is so beautiful. I have been forgiven and it was beautiful. Let me share this beauty with you. Do you see what I mean? It's through what your actions make clear you are longing for. They glimpse a world that is otherwise invisible to them. So in every context in your life, ask yourself, well, what does my longing for Christ's kingdom enable me to see here that they are blind to? In my work with my children, in my politics. A Christian should always see more, should expect more. More from his marriage, more from his family, more from his career. Because my job, my job is more than just a way to make money. It's a way to, to live out that initial creation calling to bring order to this world, to be a steward of some tiny little part of God's creation. It might be the corner of a shop that you, you make tidy. It might be a kitchen that you're building. It might be a house that you're planning. I do that job not simply to make money or, or because I enjoy it, but because I am shaping God's creation. And trust me, when you do your job with that notion, people will see. My marriage, it's more than just a way to make two people happy. My marriage is a way to show on a very tiny platform the beauty of Christ's love for his church. And that's why it's filled with compassion and love and forgiveness and patience. Because that's what I receive from Christ. And what about your children? If you're a Christian today and you have children, or you ever hope to have children, what is your longing for Christ's kingdom enable you to want for them? I mean, any half-decent parent can see the good of a, a good start in life or a good education. You should see more. You should be longing for something better. And you are their light. You need to communicate that longing to them. You need to make sure that they understand that what you long for them is to see the kingdom. And you long for that far more than you long to see them become head girl. You need to make sure that they understand that, that you long for them to join you in the kingdom of God. Far more than you long for them to be successful or well paid. Because if you only want for them what everybody else wants for their children, you are hiding light from them. Don't hide what you long for. Don't let the world teach you to long only for what they long for. Because you are how they will see what otherwise they will only hear about. You are the light of the world. So don't hide. So as I finish, 
Do your job. Read the Beatitudes. Be transformed by them. Be transfixed by their beauty. Be captured by the vision that they embody. Then let everybody else see what they mean when they're more than just a poster on the wall or a quotation on a fridge magnet, but a living, vibrant reality. Be salt. Because if you don't do what only you can do, then why are you here? Be light. Because you are how they will see what otherwise they would only hear about. And remember that this call to, to do your job, it, it's, it's not a put down, it's not an obligation or a guilt trip. It is the key to your own satisfaction and job because you will not truly be happy in this world if you are in Christ until you are doing this job. The horror of sin is that it keeps us from doing these things, from being these things. But Christ restores us. So do your job tonight. Not because you must, but because in Christ you can.